Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always, and I want to start today by apologizing to the listeners because we have been gone for a very long time here at Attention to Detail. I personally have been very busy with with concerts both elsewhere and in Indianapolis with the ISO. I mean, it's been great to, to get back to work, but it's been one of the busiest set of weeks of my life, uh, so many performances, so many different programs. It's not over yet, but I did want to apologize to the listeners for, for this brief hiatus that we took, but to also thank you for sticking with us, and, and we are back now, and we have several episodes coming up that hopefully will be enjoyable for, for all of you. And I wanted to start, uh, now that we're back, with with a discussion, a breakdown of a piece that probably many of our listeners will end up hearing if they go to a concert in the next month or so. It's a staple of July 4th concerts and uh, many Memorial Day concerts. I actually did a Memorial Day concert a few weeks ago where we did this piece, and I am doing a July 4th concert where we're also doing this piece. And the piece, of course, is Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, as evident in the title of this episode. This is probably one of the most beloved pieces in the classical canon. I'd venture a guess that many people who barely even listen to classical music in their in their daily lives, if at all, have heard this several times and would recognize it. It's certainly a crowd pleaser, but I wanted to kind of look a little more in depth at this piece, look at what actually happens. It's a very vivid, um, programmatic piece, and so you can really hear a lot of the action. And also just kind of talk about what what actually is going on in this piece and why it's a little it's a little odd, a little uh, that we we listen to this in the US at least on on July 4th. So a little bit of background about this piece. The War of 1812 in question that this piece is, is commemorating is, is uh, not the one that we think of in the United States, but, but rather the defeat of Napoleon, or, or not even the def- defeat, but the, the victory, or rather the Pyrrhic victory of, of the French over the Russians in 1812 at the Battle of Borodino, which would eventually lead to, to Napoleon's defeat. Um, and it's, it's interesting that, that this piece, you know, has, has been played so much in, in America because the War of 1812 for us in the U.S. Re- represents this. We, we think of this conflict between the U.S. and, and Great Britain and, you know, it, it has associations with uh, the Revolutionary War and our own independence. But this is not the 1812 being referenced in, in this piece. So it's, it's odd that we we've chosen this work to, to be played at every July 4th concert we ever have in, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, the, the French Revolution is probably what we most readily associate with our own, you know, the, the, the colors of red, white, and blue are so prevalent in French Revolution art, but also the overthrow of, of a kind of monarchy, uh, the triumph of, of liberty over tyranny, all of these ideas that were were present in the early stages of the French Revolution, and certainly that had a massive impact on our own revolution here in the U.S., are things that we look to um, in celebrating July 4th and our own independence. But it's a kind of odd choice to, to look at this War of 1812, because, of course, Napoleon 
originally kind of embodied some of those ideals, but at this point in 1812, he was anything but uh, a democratic leader and and the the victors in question in this particular piece are the Russians who historically uh, for the U.S. have not been the greatest of allies and came to represent, you know, communism and, and the Cold War and all of these things. So it's, it's, a, it's an odd choice of piece in a certain way for, for July 4th concerts. But we play it in any case, the historical, I don't know if it's irony, but kind of oxymoronicism of us playing this piece doesn't seem to bother people, and it is a it is a phenomenal work. So I want to break it down a little bit, and we'll we'll listen to some of the the key portions of this piece and and highlight the the main theme. So Tchaikovsky, this piece is about Tchaikovsky, of course, a Russian composer, and he was commissioned to write this in in eighteen eighty. He said about this piece that it wasn't really one of his favorites. It it kind of lacked artistic merit and. There's a long history of composers from from Beethoven writing The Creatures of Prometheus and his Septet and Wellington's Victory, um, writing pieces commissioned for for something to be kind of crowd-pleaser entertainment pieces that the composers themselves don't really like or see that much artistic merit in, but that were massive breadwinners and, you know, some of the biggest income earners for composers in their entire output. I think Wellington's Victory is a great example. This is a piece by Beethoven, which is in some ways very similar to 1812. You hear the French against the British um, in this piece. And uh, this is one of Beethoven's least played pieces anymore because it's, it's just not that great in a way. But it made him a ton of money and was one of the most played uh, early on. And so the same with 1812. Now, I think 1812 is a much better piece than, than Wellington's Victory. But Tchaikovsky himself was not the biggest fan of this piece. And it's really kind of a hybrid form between what we might think of as a tone poem. Uh, traditionally, tone poems are purely programmatic pieces of music that tell some sort of story. Um, And in some ways, this is definitely a tone poem. We would be more kind of... uh, The composers who we more readily associate with tone poems are the likes of Liszt, uh, Richard Strauss, Sibelius, either modern composers or composers in what we call the New German School in the 19th century of of kind of pure programmatic composition. Tchaikovsky, in in all of his output, falls a little bit in between these composers and the composers of kind of absolute music, absolute romanticism, the Brahms and Schumanns and Mendelssohns of the world, who wrote pure symphonies, pure concertos, pieces that weren't meant to be programmatic at all. And Tchaikovsky, even in his symphonies, in his pieces like this, he kind of finds a, a unique middle ground, certainly influenced by also, also by Russian music, um, between these absolute composers, people who are classicists at heart, and the more progressive programmatic composers. And so this 1812 overture is kind of a half-tone poem, but also fuses some elements of what we might expect from 
absolute romantic composers who wrote pure symphonies and concertos and adhered to these strict forms that had been set out by Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven. So we'll, we'll kind of notice that as we go through the, the breakdown of this piece. There are certainly many recognizable melodies and vivid depictions of action, but also some key formal elements that, that we get from Tchaikovsky that are, are very much in the school of Mozart, Beethoven, Schumann, Mendelssohn, Brahms. So the piece starts with this really famous cello and viola chorale for, for a few string players. And these few string players start by playing this, this Russian Orthodox hymn, which in English is called, O Lord, Save Thy People. And I want to listen to first just the hymn itself and then to the opening of the 1812 Overture. It's a beautiful opening. It kind of sets the scene, this quasi-religious scene to start this piece of probably some some peasants in the Russian countryside praying. Uh, you can you get a very vivid picture of of the Russian landscape with this opening. Tchaikovsky was a big fan of opening in these kind of chorale religious style uh, moments. The, the same thing happens at the beginning of his Romeo and Juliet overture fantasy. Um, but this is one of the most beautiful openings he ever wrote. So here's first the actual hymn. The Russian Orthodox hymn, O Lord, Save Thy People, sung, and then how it's heard in the 1812 Overture. That's just a little taste of the opening, but you can hear how Tchaikovsky has taken, he's changed the harmonies very slightly, but effectively he's taken exactly this Russian Orthodox hymn and, and set it for low strings in the orchestra. I encourage uh, our listeners throughout this breakdown, as I always do, to listen to the whole piece um, because I'm leaving out so much amazing music, including the rest of this introduction, but it's definitely worth listening to because because it's so beautiful. So we're setting the scene for a battle and we, we start by hearing this very vivid moment where we can really hear this kind of impending doom approaching terror. We hear very tumultuous music and then this kind of pleading oboe line that, that kind of evokes this, this, this image of a, a lone, probably woman, it's in the soprano register, calling out for help. And this sets this very bleak scene for, for what's to come, this battle that's about to unfold. So we start after we hear this hymn, which sets the stage for this piece, by hearing kind of the terror that's 
impending that that we're about to experience over the course of this battle. So here's that next passage right after this introduction where we hear this this beautiful lamenting pleading oboe melody. So you can really hear there Tchaikovsky's ability to write these kind of vivid action sequences. We hear this pleading oboe line and beneath that the cellos and basses playing this very tumultuous battle-like fearful line. Um, and so after this, this passage, we, we, the, the terror grows, it gets more tumultuous, the music gets progressively worked up, and then from a distance we hear the approaching French army. And so this starts a long battle sequence uh, that, we, that we hear over the course of the next few minutes. And we hear first from a distance and then progressively getting closer, the battle cry of the French, their national anthem, La Marseillaise, um, which starts in this very distant fashion. And I want to listen to that now because it's it's a, it's a great, uh, first of all, it's a great melody. It's come to represent, you know, the French Revolution and, and liberty, democracy, all these things. But you also hear it in the, beautifully in this overture, first from a great distance and then progressively getting closer. So here's the first time we hear the French actually enter the scene here. So there from a distance with kind of the, all of the necessary allusions to battle, we hear the snare drum, we hear the brass playing this, this theme, we get introduced to, to the French army. And uh, so then we, we have this, this battle sequence that comes and, and we hear the fighting, uh, it starts a little bit quietly, but, but very quickly gets work, worked up and Tchaikovsky really vividly depicts, uh, you know, a, a real battle, fighting and, and struggle between two forces. And as this battle is going on, we hear La Marseillaise, this, this theme emerging over the top of this, kind of crying out amidst all of the chaos and fighting. So I want to listen to a little bit of this, this uh, battle sequence um, where, where we hear, you know, this French national anthem emerging from this very tumultuous musical texture that, that Tchaikovsky uses. So hopefully you can hear amidst that battle the, the horns and trumpets playing 
the main theme of La Marseillaise over the top of this kind of emerging from the chaos. And this battle scene goes on for a little while, and then it kind of degenerates, devolves, fades away, and we get this beautiful lyrical second theme. And this is one of the ways in which, in some uh, in in some respects, Tchaikovsky is is a classicist, is paying homage to Brahms, Schumann, Mendelssohn, all the composers I've mentioned, because the form of this piece. You know, you have this tumultuous first theme, uh, or first section after after kind of the introduction, which we just heard, the battle. And then it's contrasted with a lyrical second theme. That's the mold that even Mozart and Haydn used, but certainly Beethoven used in a piece like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The ultimate contrast between uh, storminess and, and lyricism. And we get that here as well. And it's a little hard to know exactly what this lyrical theme is meant to, to represent in the context of this piece, but it's kind of maybe some sort of uh, homage to the, to the Russian people who are being affected by this, this battle, or maybe just a celebration of, of, of the Russian people in some way. Uh, I'll leave this up to the listener to decide, but in any case, it's you know, Tchaikovsky is known for writing beautiful melodies, and this is certainly one of them. So he introduces this beautifully lyrical second theme here in contrast to the, the tumult of the battle. So let's listen to a little bit of that as well. So there you have a, a classic Tchaikovsky lyrical, beautiful, sumptuous melody. And then after this, again, the music kind of devolves, degenerates, and we get this odd moment outside of the standard form of this piece, which, which would suggest again to us that this is more of a free-form tone poem as opposed to some sort of strict sonata or something like that that we would expect from the the absolute composers um and we hear this lonely folk song in russian it's called uvorot vorot um and this this folk song kind of emerges out of nothing and it it feels like it feels like the french are winning the battle at this point they certainly we heard la marseillaise many times over this this initial battle scene and much of the depictions of, of the Russians have been pleading, painful. And again, we hear this kind of, it's almost like an elegy to, to the Russian people or to their folk traditions, because at this point, it feels like this might be wiped out by this, this battle that's going on. So here is this folk song that we hear in the middle, kind of sandwiched between the two halves of this piece. So here is this this plaintive but beautiful Russian folk song, Uvorot Vorot.
Now following this folk song, we're going to skip some music because here's the real classicist in Tchaikovsky coming out. He repeats all of the battle music and the, the second lyrical theme music again. This is certainly what would, we would expect from, from Beethoven and Brahms and composers who would write kind of sonata forms where there's an exposition, we hear two themes, and then those themes are recapitulated, we hear them again. And so he does this here and we hear much of the same music again, the battle and the lyrical theme. And of course, I'd encourage you to go listen to it, but for the purposes of this breakdown, we'll skip that for now. And, and then we come actually to the moment of the final moment of the battle. And one of the most famous things about this 1812 overture is that Tchaikovsky called for the use of, of cannons. And that's what most people know. I think that's part of the reason why it's done on July 4th, because it's fun to set cannons off outdoors. And, and here's the first time that we hear the cannons. They're used for, they're saved for the most important battle moments of the piece. And so this one kind of represents the actual Battle of Borodino, this, this uh, battle where Napoleon technically defeated the Russians, but, but which ultimately led to, to his demise. Um, and we hear the cannons coming in again over the, the Marseillaise theme. And let's listen to this, uh, this passage as well, because we should keep in mind that we've heard these, these plaintive Russian folk song moments, and much of the battle music has been dominated by the French music, La Marseillaise, and that's certainly true here. This is the moment, kind of, I think, of, of French victory, uh, the first introduction of, of the canon. So here is the, this moment, the Battle of Borodino, which we hear where the canons come in for the first time in this, this piece. So over this cannon fire, we hear the blaring of La Marseillaise as the French seem to, to win this battle. And then what follows is this crazy passage where the strings are playing what we call measured tremolo. Um, it's wild, it's frenzied. And then we come to the finale of this, this piece. And the finale, I think, is what's most famous for people, what they've probably heard. And this starts with the entrance of, of the carillon or the bells. Uh, that's another really recognizable moment in this piece where a percussionist is playing these bells that are meant to represent kind of a, a big Russian Orthodox church that's, that's ringing its bells in some sort of victory. And we hear this original melody that we were introduced to at the very beginning of this piece, O Lord, Save Thy People. And now it comes back, you know, we heard it originally in this, this low strings chorale, very solemnly, very peacefully. 
and now it comes back incredibly triumphantly amidst this battle. And it's this is supposed to represent, you know, in some way, I, I don't know exactly what it's supposed to represent, but the triumph of the Russian spirit, maybe the triumph of the Russian people. But this emerges over the top of this this frenzied battle scene with the with the bells clanging, and it's it's an incredible auditory experience that if you've ever heard this piece, uh, you know, is is just so that's why we play it so frequently but but here's that that amazing uh moment where the opening comes back in this most triumphant fashion if you if you don't recognize this from the opening it's probably worth going back and just listening to that opening very simple cello chorale and then hearing this passage all the way at the end of this piece where it comes back so here's that moment You know, this moment can actually be a little jarring for people because it's so cacophonous. Like there's these huge bell noises going on and the player's instructed to play the bells randomly. It's just a frenzy of activity while this the strings are playing this frenzied texture underneath. And But it's this raw excitement, uh, jubilation, you know, frenzied energy, whatever it might be towards the end of this piece, which is just, it's, it's electric when you hear it, uh, in concert. And so then we get the final closing passage and we hear La Marseillaise one more time with the snare drum, with all of the appropriate battle accoutrements, like we've heard it before. But now we get introduced to a new theme that we've never heard yet in this piece. And this theme, which comes over the top of La Marseillaise, is the theme of the Russian national anthem from the time that Tchaikovsky composed this, God Save the Tsar. Um, it wouldn't have actually been the national anthem during this battle. Uh, it, was, it was brought into existence, commissioned in the 1830s, um, but, and it was wiped out, of course, in 1917 with the Russian Revolution. But for most of the 19th century, this was the Russian national anthem. And I think it's it's probably notable that it wouldn't have been the national anthem then, but it was for Tchaikovsky, because in some way, maybe this represents kind of the enduring triumph of, of the Russian spirit over this French invasion. You know, they were still there uh, 60 years later after uh, Napoleon had been defeated. And so we hear this kind of more current reference to Russian greatness from Tchaikovsky with this God Save the Tsar national anthem coming over the top of, of La Marseillaise in this finale. So first, first let's just listen to this national anthem, a little bit of it, and then we'll hear this, this closing climax of the 1812 overture. So first, here's the God Save the Tsar Russian national anthem. So 
it certainly has that kind of patriotic Russian chorus feel. Uh, but Tchaikovsky introduces this melody brilliantly. It's it's incredible that he saves it until the very end. All these other themes are returning in this cacophonous finale, but this final Russian national anthem is saved for this moment. So let's listen to the whole final sequence. It's it's you know one of the greatest endings in classical music, and you hear first. La Marseillaise come back once more and then this God Save the Tsar theme come on top of this and represent kind of the ultimate, I think, my interpretation of this piece, the ultimate triumph of of the Russians over the French in, in this battle. So here is the ending of the 1812 Overture, one of the greatest endings in all of classical music, I'd say. have it, the ending of the 1812 Overture. I hope this breakdown has given a little bit of kind of a roadmap for this piece, because I think often when people hear it, it's kind of like the William Tell Overture, where everyone knows the last two, three minutes, but they haven't actually always heard or listened to or paid attention to the whole piece, which is actually a great piece in its own right, and a lot happens, and it's it's great, vivid music. And so if, if you get the chance, I'm sure almost everyone, at least in the U.S. listening to this podcast, has some orchestra that will be playing the 1812 Overture, hopefully on an outdoor, maybe free concert uh, in the area. And if you want to go check it out now, hopefully you'll be armed with some details on what happens over the course of this entire piece and, and a little you know, cocktail trivia if you want to, to tell your friends about a <laughs> all of this great stuff that you know about this piece and and they're just excited for the end but you know if it was me I would be lecturing everybody on oh you know this is this is this folk song that comes in in the middle and you should really pay attention here so you can do the same I, I can't attest to this being a great way to maintain all of your friendships but at least you're armed with some knowledge going into to listening to to this great piece and I encourage you also to to think about the, the historical context and and what you actually hear in the piece as, as a kind of moment of reflection on why we play this piece, what this piece means, and the state of our, our country and, and what we're celebrating on July 4th. I mean, that's something that, especially in light of the pandemic, in light of recent events, in preparation for my own July 4th concerts, I've been doing a lot of reflection on what I should say, um, 
what what I you know what what this piece should really represent, um, and and kind of if these ideals that we associate with this piece of liberty and freedom and all these things, first if they apply to everyone in our own country, but also if they if they appropriately apply to this piece. So in any case, it's a great opportunity for thought, reflection, interpretation, and some incredible music. So I hope everyone this this July 4th will go and get a chance to listen to some of this this great Tchaikovsky. And again, thanks so much for sticking with us. I'm sorry for the hiatus, but we are back and we'll have many more episodes to come. So thank you as always and, and see you soon. <laughs>